we've been working through uh, this uh, account, historical account of Esther in the story that we find in the book of Esther, Lord of the, uh, in the uh, kingdom of the Persians uh, way back in ancient times. What we actually find, what we see as we've uh, followed the contours of the narrative is we've seen God at the very center of all of the events, God at the heart of what is going on. In fact, it is God who is orchestrating the whole of this story behind the scenes. I find that remarkable uh, in the sense that we see the greatest of empires that the world had seen up to that point uh, with the greatest leader, King Xerxes, somebody who was at the pinnacle of world power, and yet we see God at the very center of those events. That's what the Bible is claiming. That gives us, I think, great encouragement for us today when we look around the world, when we see various things are going on, when we question, when we wonder, is God in control or is, God out, or is the world out of control? What we actually see is that God in a seeming situation that was out of control in the days of Esther is actually the one who clearly is in control. And therefore, we can have the same confidence that that very same God who does not change continues to be the God who is in control in the world today. What we see in this, the back end of this story is we see responses, if you like, to what has gone on. We see how people respond to the events in the story. We see Esther as the queen who intervenes along with Mordecai to overturn uh, the evil plot of Haman who is destined in his mind to kill all of God's people and yet we see that reversed. We saw last week as we looked in chapter 9, we saw that there was huge immediate celebration. What we see this week and what we're going to focus on is that that celebration did not remain just for that moment in time, but rather that that celebration continued. It became an established moment of remembrance. I think remembrance is a really important idea in every culture really, and yet from a religious point of view, from a faith point of view, it seems to me as if the Bible really majors on that idea of remembrance. Again and again, through the storyline, the threads of the Bible, we see the idea of looking back and remembering absolutely essential to the idea of the message of the Bible. That's what we're going to be looking at this afternoon. And yet what we see is that even in our day, remembrance is an important thing. We remember all sorts of things, but certainly as a nation and as a commonwealth, uh, in a few months' time, we're going to uh, be once again uh, remembering the end of conflict from World War I on Remembrance Day. It's sometimes, um, it, it just, we miss, don't we, the idea that what we're actually remembering is the end of World War I. Um, 1918, it was established in 1919 by King George V on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month to remember the signing of the armistice. Uh, I guess when, when I was younger, it was very much, it was the memory of the First and Second World Wars, and yet there's been so many world conflicts in various ways that armed forces have been involved in uh, since then that it's now being swallowed up, and 
nothing wrong with that. The idea that we're increasingly remembering. What are we remembering? Um, well, actually, we're not remembering victory. That's really important idea behind remembrance. We're not remembering victory, and yet sometimes we, remember, we, we fall into that idea. It was actually originally established to remember those who had given their lives. That was the idea of the remembrance when it was first established. It's taken on the broader idea with many more conflicts since. And yet what we are remembering is those who have sacrificed. That, incidentally, I'm sure you know, most of you will know, is why the poppy is uh, the, the symbol of remembrance. Because poppies grew across the fields, uh, the battlefields in France, the Western Front, uh, were taken over with poppies. And uh, the poppy became the emblem uh, of the remembrance because it signifies the blood that was shed. Yet what we find in our account here is we actually see that there is a very clear uh, celebration and remembrance because of victory. Now it's an interesting diversion that we see here. So we're going to see three patterns of remembering. We're going to see Mordecai's pattern of remembering. We're going to have a look at the biblical pattern of remembering. And then we're going to focus in on the gospel pattern of remembering. So it's all, if you like, it's, it's contained, all of those ideas of remembering uh, contained within the Bible. But this very helpfully gives us a springboard into those various ways that we remember. So the first thing that we see in Mordecai's pattern of remembering is that he remembered because of victory. Look at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the province, provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually. Do you see that? He's already introducing the idea that we've celebrated uh, this moment now, but we now I'm instructing you to celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. So that's the point, isn't it? That's the focus of the celebration. We are remembering the reality of an enemy and we are remembering victory over that enemy. That's what we see Mordecai is establishing. So uh, we see that he's got a very clear focus. He's wanting the people to set into their minds to start a tradition uh, that they will remember victory. It's a really important concept. If you like, it's, it's encouraging people to remember that they are connected to a heritage, connected to something in the past. We have a tendency in our culture today to think that anything in the past is passé, something that can be ignored, something that can be forgotten. The problem with that is, is that we end up, if you like, disconnected from anything. We end up sort of swilling around, swaying around, not sure where we are. Because if we disconnect from all aspects of the past, we lose a sense of identity. That's what we're going to see as we work through this. What Mordecai is encouraging the people, don't just celebrate once. Remember what has happened. We got victory over our enemies, so do it annually. Start a tradition. 
Now, straight away, some of us think, whoa, tradition? We're not really comfortable with traditions. What we want to do is overturn traditions and do everything new. Do you know there are some traditions which are really good? It is good to establish certain traditions. The way that you remember traditions might change over time. The way that you express the remembrance of those traditions might change over time. But the core of it can be really helpful. You know, we need to remember that we are connected historically. We need to remember, here we are in a church in the 21st century, perhaps in a little bit more of an unusual place than most churches. It doesn't look like a church uh, for a start, uh, but it is connected. It's connected to a heritage. Tuesday evening, we were uh, just remembering the idea that we are connected to a heritage which means that the church has met in way stranger places than this in times gone by. We remember during the Roman Empire persecutions that the church met in the catacombs. The living meeting amongst the dead. It's got a remarkable picture to it. It's got all sorts of ideas and thoughts uh, about the idea of the message of the gospel. But because of persecution, the Christians around the areas of Rome used to literally meet underground in the catacombs because it was a safe place to meet away from the Roman authorities. The same kind of thing is happening in different parts of the world today. Because of persecution, the church is meeting in remarkably different, diverse, hidden away, secret places. It always has done, it always will do, until Jesus returns. At different points in time, the church will meet in different surprising places. But they are all connected. They are connected to a lineage which takes us back to the point where Jesus establishes the church through the book of Acts. We are connected to that. Let's not forget it. We are part of it. So we see that Mordecai is keen to establish an annual remembrance. Secondly, we see that he establishes it on the whole of the narrative. Let me explain that. Let's have a look, shall we, at verse 26. Therefore, these days were called Purim after the word Pur because of everything written in this letter and because of what the Jews had seen and what had happened to them. Really interesting. He he, he calls the celebration Purim. This is months and months and months away from the event. If we remember the the storyline, the evil Haman has decided that he will uh, determine the death of God's people. And he casts lots, or he casts dice, he throws dice. That's the closest that we have. We don't really understand what poor meant or looks like. But essentially, he threw some sort of token of chance to determine when God's people are going to be killed. And it ended up months into the future. The the thing that he threw, whatever it was, dice as close as we can get, was the pearl. He cast the pearl. And what Mordecai does is he says, remember this celebration. 
this celebration is not the celebration of today alone. It's the celebration which is connected to the very event when Haman threw the die. We're going to see that that is fantastically important for the way the story works its way out. He's saying, we call it this, which was cast in the month of Adar, and we celebrate, sorry, in the month of Nisan, and we celebrate it in the month of Adar, months and months and months later. But we call it something which happened back there. Because what Mordecai is encouraging the people to do is to hold a celebration, but not forget the whole story. You know, very often we can do that, can't we? We can just get wrapped up in the celebration and forget the reason for the celebration. You know, I think we're going to see it big time in a few months' time, aren't we? We've got Christmas. Sorry, folks, I know it's just after the summer holiday. There's the first mention. Uh, we've got Christmas coming up. We're going to see a mass of celebration. And you know as well as I do that the mass of that celebration is going to be disconnected from the actual event, the birth of Jesus. Uh, And what Mordecai is doing is he is establishing an idea. He's saying, celebrate this at this time of the year, but remember that it is connected to events at that time of the year because what goes on between those two is what we are celebrating. It's the whole of the story that we are celebrating. Not just the momentary uh, relief and victory at the end. In other words, what is he trying to say? The victory is not just this moment. That's what he's saying. He's saying the victory started when Haman cast the die. In actual fact, what we've seen is the victory was going on way before that as well. God was already maneuvering the victory before Haman had even cast the die. That's the storyline. But what we see laid out is the, in Mordecai's decree, is see the whole thing connected. And then we see that he wants to encourage them to do it continually. What he's doing is he's setting a pattern. These days, we look at verse 28, these days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. In other words, for Mordecai, he wants to make sure it is not just important for us who lived it. It's important for your children and for your children's children and for your children's children. Why? Why is it important? Why is something that happened way back there important for generation after generation after generation? Because what we see is that God had saved his people. Therefore, God's people in generations to come are actually able to celebrate the victory that happened back there. If God hadn't saved them, there wouldn't even be the generations following to to rejoice and to celebrate. They wouldn't exist. They'd be dead. That's Haman's plan. 
He was going to wipe them out. Therefore, the you that come generations and generations later, and it's still celebrated by Jews today, uh, celebrate this event because you need to know, you need to remember, you need to keep in your mind that you live because God moved. You live because God intervened, because God saved. That's what Haman is, uh, what Mordecai is establishing on the back of Haman's uh, evil plot. What we actually see, having looked at Mordecai's pattern for remembering, we see that that fits in with the biblical pattern of remembering. It sits in with a whole idea. He's not sort of, I don't, he's not sat there. Um, obviously, we believe that he was not doing this in his own thinking. Fascinating, we've said already that the Bible, this part of the Bible doesn't mention the name of God. What we see, what we believe is that Mordecai isn't just sat there thinking up all sorts of ideas. He's actually moving by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of God dealing with him. Uh, and so Mordecai and Queen Esther together make this decree. But they're not doing something which is wacky and unusual for God's people. What they're actually doing is they are establishing another moment of celebration. God's people already do this. They're already used to remembering moments of rejoicing because God has saved them. It's a pattern that is already established in their community. They're doing it hundreds of years earlier. God's people are in a similar, actually they're in a worse fix than we find them in this place of captivity in the Persian Empire. They're in a place of captivity in Egypt. They don't go into captivity in Egypt, they go in willingly. In fact, they end up going in to be saved. If they didn't go into Egypt under the, uh, under the care and governance of Joseph, Jacob and his sons would be dead. They go into Egypt and they receive uh, great provision. But over time, things change and they end up slaves. God's people who go in to be saved end up slaves. Great little idea, those who want to go away and think about it, the idea that actually we can never ultimately be saved in this world. Uh, everything that looks like it's going to save us will ultimately enslave us in this world. God's people are enslaved. God intervenes. He breaks into that situation. Uh, he intervenes through Moses, who goes out in front of Pharaoh on repeated occasions and with various interventions by God, uh, various plagues that are brought on the nation of Egypt, God hammers home and hammers home and hammers home to Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. You need to liberate them. You need to free them because I am the God who is behind them. Again and again and again, Pharaoh refuses to listen. Uh, ultimately, God says to Moses, this is what you're to do. You're to instruct all of the people. They are to take a lamb. They are to slaughter it. They are going to paint the blood on the doorposts of the house that they are in, and then during the night, they are going to uh, eat that celebration, that meal, that Passover meal. They're going to eat the meal together. And I am going to move. And I am going to move 
in an incredibly powerful, destructive way. I'm going to bring death on those who have refused to free you. And what happens is that every firstborn of every house in the whole of Egypt that does not have the blood on the doorposts, the firstborn dies. And God's people are liberated and freed. Listen what, to what God says after that event. Exodus chapter 12 uh, and verse 42, it says this, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. And then he gives them a whole load of regulations. In other words, it is God who has already established a way of remembering. He's already said to his people, I want you for generations to come, generations to come, I want you to celebrate that meal in that way. This is the way you are to do it. And basically, God's people reenact that Passover meal. They do it again just to remind themselves generation after generation after generation. Why? Because if God hadn't intervened at that moment, they wouldn't exist. They'd be dead. Exactly the same idea as Mordecai. God is insisting, you need to remember the times when I have intervened and I have saved you. And it's not just for you who immediately have been saved, but for your generation after generation after generation to remember. Isn't it remarkable the way Mordecai reenacts the idea that God has established? He's encouraging the people. Guess what happened way back there in Egypt? God saved us. God saved us. So we remember every year the idea that God saved us. Guess what? God's just saved us again. So what we're going to do is we're going to remember every year that God has saved us again. Do you see the idea of the two concepts coming together, working together for the people to be reminded on two occasions that God has intervened in their lives to save them? Isn't it amazing the way God is moving in that way? in their lives, in their generations, so that they will remember. God wants his people to remember that he has intervened to save them. That's remarkable. Do you know what is mind-blowing? Absolutely mind-blowing. Do you know when the, the purr was cast? The purr was cast at Passover. The purr was cast at Passover. Now, when I, when I picked that up and started to think about that, I found that mind-blowing. In other words, God is not saving in a disconnected way. He's saving in an integrated way. He's saving in a way where Haman... Uh, I mean, he's not a Jew, is he? He's not going to stand there and say, mm, I'm going to wipe out all of the Jews. When should I decide? I tell you what I'll do. I'll cast the lot on the night that fits in with one of their celebrations. Is Haman going to do that? Is he going to sort of look at the Jewish calendar and work it out? When is the best? 
Absolutely not. We don't even read in the book of Esther that the Passover is actually being celebrated. We read that Esther instructs Mordecai to tell all of the people to fit to fast for three days, which is exactly what would have been happening. And yet what we see is that God is intervening to connect the two. He's saying, my salvation is not disconnected. There are connections in other words. So here we are. We are a few hundred years after the story of Esther. And we're going through our daily lives as God's people. And we celebrate the Passover. And then months later we celebrate Purim. And we remember that the casting of the poor was way back at Passover. And we realize that those two connections mean that God is not a disconnected God of salvation. He is an integrated God of salvation. His work of salvation is connected remarkably, amazingly. God is not working at the whim of Haman. God is working out his salvation so that his people know without fail, I am behind it. Now, that's great. That's amazing. That's interesting. (laughs) Except that we now look at how we see gospel remembering. Because... If God is establishing a pattern in the Bible, if God is not a God of disconnected events, sometimes you ever look at the celebrations in the Old Testament, you think they're just, they're just all over, the happening all over the time, all over the shop. You know, it looks to me like it's not a bad religion. There's bank holidays all over the place, loads of holiday time. And then you actually realize that God is building up a picture through the year, you need to remember I'm a saving God that integrates my salvation. And then we realize that as we enter into the New Testament, the idea of gospel remembering becomes incredibly powerful. Because what? Because there's another Passover. Another Passover. Another Passover where we read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Jesus and his disciples celebrated what God's people had been celebrating for centuries, which was connected to the celebration of Purim because it remembered the casting of the poor the connection of salvation on two occasions, and now we see God intervening another ultimate intervention of salvation. Because God's people in that small group of disciples meet with Jesus, which as we see in the Gospels, is the opening up of the final narrative of salvation. The final chapter in the storybook of God's dealing in this world. The intervention of God's actions in this world. So that, if, if you like, everything else 
has been prologues. It's been pictures. It's been ideas. It's been thoughts. It's been the kind of thing which is really exciting to think about because it it fits into place when we see the ultimate. When we see the final incredible Passover, then all of the other Passovers make sense but become irrelevant at the same time. It's as though all of the Passovers that have gone before, all of the celebrations that have gone before, are as nothing because this is so huge. Because the Passover is no longer a lamb that is slaughtered in every home, but it is the Lamb of God that is slaughtered once. What a difference. I want you to imagine, back in Egypt, we're all in our homes, spread across the city. We've slaughtered the Lamb. There's blood on the doorposts, but we're all in our little community of family. We're all waiting. We're all dressed, ready to move. In some sense, we're disconnected because we're all in our own little places. But in another sense, we're connected, aren't we? Because we have all taken part in the slaughtering of many lambs and the spreading of much blood across all of the doorposts. In other words, we are all as one through that event. Now Jesus comes along and he becomes the one sacrifice. What we see in all of the letters that follow, that all of the writers of the various epistles describe Jesus, as in the Gospels as well, as the Lamb of God. And we see ultimately that John describes when he looks into heaven, he sees a lamb that was slain standing. That's the description that he uses. John uses uh, apocalyptic language, which is, if you like, it's words to describe the undescribable. You can't have a lamb that is standing, can you, that's been slaughtered. You can't have a lamb that's slaughtered that's standing. That's a, 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 it's an impossibility. It's an oxymoron. And yet John does exactly that. He says, there's a lamb that is slaughtered and it's standing because that is the ultimate sacrifice. To remember what? To remember God saving his people. To remember God's victory. Haman cast lots. He cast lots to decide when he would act in destruction. But actually, quite the reverse was actually what the lot was all about. What was actually behind the lot was when God would act in victory. There's another set of dice that are cast, the foot of Jesus as he's nailed to a cross. And a few completely disinterested soldiers, completely uninterested. Actually, what it says in Mark is that they divided up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. (laughs) What are you getting out of this crucifixion? 
a winter coat or salvation? What are you getting? What would they get? I wonder what those soldiers got. I wonder if any of those soldiers, other than Centurion, who clearly seems to finally understand what goes on, I wonder whether any of those soldiers at the foot of the cross actually got what was really, truly available. It's a brilliant picture that C.S. Lewis describes as Aslan is slaughtered on the stone table. It just looks devastating. And then he rises... Uh, And he describes the failure of the witch. He says, she didn't understand the deeper magic. (laughs) It's a great picture. She didn't understand something that was deeper. You see, when Jesus was slaughtered on the cross, it looked like victory for Satan. It looked like that. It looked like the purr being cast, didn't it? By Haman. It looked like Satan and evil had won. But it hadn't. Because what worked out was victory for Jesus. And we sit, in a sense, in between. What does Paul encourage us to do? Exactly what Mordecai encourages us to do. Exactly what Mordecai encourages us to do. He says, you, if you believe in the salvation that God has worked out at the cross, if you believe and if you trust in that, you must remember it. You absolutely must remember it. Here's a straight up, guys. If you believe in Jesus and you come along to this church, you must come along to the very best of your efforts to meet on a Tuesday evening once a month and share in communion together. To the best of your efforts. And know it's not possible for everybody, but don't treat it as something which is a nice possibility or an idea that I might think about at some time. Paul says you must do this. Because from generation to generation to generation, this is your remembrance of what has happened on the cross. It's what Jesus has done. Because we live by traditions. We live by memories, by remembrances, which spark in our minds and help us to remember on a day-to-day basis who we are. That's what the remembrance was for Mordecai. That's what the remembrance was for Passover. That's what the remembrance is as we meet for communion. Because we believe that the slaughtered Jesus and the blood that was shed is the victory. That is the victory. The victory. The victory over our enemies. In exactly the same way as Mordecai. He celebrated victory over enemies. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to close with this. He says it like this. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. What he's saying is this. Charged, guilty. You are legally indebted. You look at the charge list. Stand up in the court of heaven And you are charged and found 
guilty, but he counseled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You know, have you ever been in that situation? You know, in school, maybe. Caught red-handed. You know that you're done. It's happened. Happened to me, I remember. I'm sat there. And this mate of mine, mate, yeah, really good friend. Great friend of mine, yeah, fantastic. Sticks a compass in me, in my leg, uh, during a technical drawing. That's in the days when technical drawing was with pencils and not computers. Sticks a compass in my leg. And he's about to do it again, so I stand up and walk around the chair and sit down on the other side, which is a really weird thing to do, uh, so that he can't do it again. Just at the point where the teacher had gone out of the class, uh, came back in. Howell? Yeah, okay, Mr. Jones, down to the front, three whacks with the one-meter ruler. Uh, That was in the days when they could do that. I was banged to rights. I was guilty. You know what? In the court of heaven, our guilt is absolute. We are banged to rights. And yet what God says, he has condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, we've got enemies, spiritual enemies, that will say, guilty. And they're right. And yet Jesus defeats those enemies by standing for us, dying for us, rising again for us, ascending to heaven for us. He stands to condemn them. That's why he's a lamb that's slaughtered that is standing in heaven. Because the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice has taken place. The issue is, it's not about you must come on a Tuesday evening once a month. It's actually about do you associate with that moment of remembrance? Do you say, yes, that is me. I believe that. I hold on to that. That is what Jesus has done for me.